Greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. I hope you're having a fabuloso day. Uh, today we're going to continue on in the book of Acts. Uh, we yesterday we did we began chapter two with the events of Pentecost, which were pretty amazing. Uh, <clears throat> the disciples were gathered together, and there was a sound like a mighty wind, rushing wind, and tongues of fire appeared over top of them, and they began praising God uh, in the languages of those who were gathered around them. And these are languages that the Galileans, the disciples, uh, didn't know. They were speaking the wonders of God in unknown languages to them, and their hearers discovered that these languages were their languages. And this was at a time when there would be uh, remnants of the diaspora, uh, Jews from all around the known world were, were, were be coming to Jerusalem, and they each heard these disciples praising God in their own languages. I have the most interesting discussions with myself, and believe it or not, I argue with myself sometimes. But the advantage of arguing with yourself is you're always the one who wins. Regardless, I was having this discussion with myself the other day. And I've had many people throughout my life uh, express the opinion that uh, they they see, read about stuff like this in, in the Bible and the miracles and the healings and this, that, and the other. And they dismiss it right away because uh, they don't believe, they say they don't believe in the supernatural. Uh, but some of these same people will get all fascinated with with uh, haunted houses and uh, supernatural scary type things and vampires and monsters and goblins and banshees and things that go bump in the night which I I thought was hilarious. I pointed that out to a friend of mine. He just started laughing. He, he realized the, the, uh, the hole in his argument about the Bible and supernatural things. But the point I brought up yesterday was, yes, these are fantastical things that took place, speaking in tongues, um, the healings, and everything that we read about in the Bible. But Luke was a very fastidious recorder of historical events. And we can trust what he had to say, I believe, in regards to supernatural events because he was truthful in everything else that he wrote. He was very factual in his description of cultural things, governmental things, legal things, uh, geographical locations. He was accurate in everything. So... He is not a writer who seemingly makes things up. He was a very factual recorder of events. So based on his style and his history of being so good and so factual, I accept what he says here happened. And of course, I am a Christian and I, do, and I am biased on the side of God. So I don't have a problem with that. Okay, let's get, we did 1 through 21 yesterday. We are going to be looking at, uh, we're going to pick it up at verse 22. Fellow Israelites, 
Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. It's important. He's not saying, saying something that he's making up. He's actually reminding them, you know this, you were there. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, this is a comment from the commentary uh, I was reading on this. Peter's sermon declares Christ to be both Lord and Messiah. Jesus' identity as Lord and Messiah is fundamentally demonstrated by his resurrection. God demonstrated his approval of Jesus by miracles, signs, and wonders. Peter uses the same words used in Joel's citation. None of the inhabitants of Jerusalem could deny the reports of Jesus' miracles. Some were witnesses to these events. Peter affirms Christ's death as God's plan. A strong theme in Luke and Acts, though this truth did not excuse the perpetrator's guilt. Both Peter's audience and the Romans were complicit in Jesus' death. The resurrection ended the pains of death that Jesus endured in the victory of the cross, and the inability of death to hold Jesus demonstrates Jesus' deity. Now, this is an important point. Uh, I'd say it's probably about a month, month and a half after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, the conversation about Jesus would still be in people's lips. And Jesus didn't appear just to the 12. Uh, there, there was more than that. And Peter is making some very strong claims here that, first of all, that Jesus was resurrected. You know, all it would have taken to squash this new movement would have been to produce the body of Jesus. And trust me, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the Levites, scribes, Romans, they would have been very, very, very much interested in putting this thing to rest. And all they would have had to do was produce the body of Jesus, but couldn't. The miracles that have been claimed to be done by Jesus in their midst, many of these people listening would have been witnesses to that. Um, this is a very bold statement by Peter. Peter's putting stuff out there, and all they would have had to do to kill this thing would be to produce the body of Jesus. But they couldn't because his body isn't there, and it wasn't there then. He makes references to the miracles and the signs and wonders that Jesus did in their midst. Many of these people would have seen uh, many of these signs and wonders. Uh, there would be people there that might remember the lame man being healed by the pool, by the pool, um, the the lepers being uh, cleansed, blind men seeing, lame men walking, even dead people being raised. So Peter opens up with a very, very, very strong enunciation. He says, you've seen this. He demonst God demonstrated his approval of Jesus by miracles, signs, and wonders. 
that you have seen. God did these among you through him as you yourselves know. All right, so he's saying that Messiah had come, done miracles, been resurrected, and you need to know you're the ones who put him to death. Pretty strong words. David said about Messiah, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead and you will not let your Holy One see decay. I have to stop right there. Two different people are being addressed in verse 27. David is saying, my, in verse 26, my heart is glad, my body will rest in hope, because you won't abandon me to the realm of the dead. And you will not let your Holy One see decay. That sentence is not referring to David. That sentence is referring to Messiah. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Your body is not going to decay. It's not going to, to rot in the grave. You made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, Peter goes on, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This is a hard-hitting sermon. Peter is smacking them in the mouth with some hard things. He says, God demonstrated through Jesus who Jesus was. Signs and wonders. You've seen those. He was resurrected. That proves he's Messiah. David believes that Jesus was Messiah. And you killed him. You would think, and he's pointing, he's, he's talking to the audience that's gathered to listen. You would think that this would not be a church building sermon point. It'd be like a pastor standing in front of a church and laying out the church's sins before them, chewing them out, being very firm and bold. Therefore, let all Israel be sure of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And I wrote a note down here. David, considered Israel's greatest king, was used by Peter as a comparison, emphasized the king of kings, Jesus. Peter shows through David's own words that Messiah would not see the decay that death brings. Jesus' resurrection shows that Jesus is who David is referring to. See, all Israel was waiting for Messiah and Peter's telling him, he was here and you killed him. Now, 
This isn't just a Jewish thing. The Jews did not kill Jesus. Mankind killed Jesus. Rome was complicit with Israel, with the Israel, especially the religious leadership, in the killing and the murder of Jesus. So when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brother, what shall we do? Wow. The audience had experienced the events around the death of Jesus. They had seen the phenomenon of Pentecost and now heard scripture persuasively applied to these events. Their response suggests the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When the word is preached, two things will, one of two things will happen. People will turn away or people will turn towards God. Peter did not mince words. This was not a seeker-sensitive church service, and I say that tongue-in-cheek. This was not a sermon aimed at attracting people to the movement. This was a sermon that highlighted the sin of the listeners. This is a sermon that laid out in no uncertain terms. You've waited for Messiah. Israel's waited for Messiah for centuries. He showed up and you killed him. And in the midst of that sermon, they're convicted. What are we going to do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, I highlighted the word repent here because repent means a change of direction. You're going this way. Now, turn and go this way. Change direction. Go in a different way. Repent. Quit being the way you are and embrace the Messiah. Be baptized. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, this is a new era, a new dawn of a new era. Prior to this moment, the Holy Spirit had been active in mankind from the very beginning of time. And the Holy Spirit would fall on people, on prophets, and special selected individuals in the Old Testament. But from this point on, when you enter into this relationship with God, the Holy Spirit is put inside you. It changes you from the inside out. And we are seeing the beginning of the, the age of the Holy Spirit, I guess I would say. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, I don't know if Peter knew this, but he was laying the foundation for acceptance, large-scale acceptance of Gentiles into this thing. Up until this point, right now, it's primarily Jewish. In fact, in the very beginning, uh, Christianity, which it wasn't called that then, it was called the way, was considered to be a sect within Judaism. Which makes sense, because most of the people who, who had become believers in Christ, in the Christ, were Jews. And we're going to see that here in a little bit. 
with many other words, meaning there was more to Peter's sermon than Luke recorded here. In many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and 3,000 were added to their number that day. Isn't that amazing? He hits them in the face with the facts that Messiah came, you killed him. And they say, what can we do? And Peter says, repent, stop thinking this way. Stop acting this way. Turn towards God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. When people were baptized, there was a, a, how do I say this? They were baptized in the name of something or someone. And it would be, if you're Jewish, it would be God. There were, there were ritualistic cleansing and baptisms within the Jewish faith. And he, by Peter saying this, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, he's saying you're, you're accepting that seal, you're accepting that identification. You're accepting the fact that the Messiah who you killed, who was raised from the dead, you're stepping under the cover of that name. You are being baptized in the name of Jesus. He's the authority. He, and and by doing that, he's putting Jesus Christ, of course, as God. Because only God gives the authority to save. And he's saying, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's amazing stuff. All right, the activity of the church here. Oh, excuse me here. 3,000 out of that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The activity of the church here is expressed in teaching and fellowship, then meals and prayers. Teaching and fellowship, meals and prayers. The teaching of the apostles likely refers to what they had to teach from. What? Well, they unpacked the Old Testament in light of what Jesus had done. Probably the closest thing as a musician that I can compare this to is a song by uh, the Beatles called Let It Be. Paul McCartney wrote it. And I always just used to like the song. I never really thought about it much. I just liked the song. And then I heard the backstory behind that song. It put that song in a whole new light and made it much more powerful as a song for me. Uh, The song references Mother Mary And I used to think it was a Catholic reference, and I just left it at that. But when I found out that Paul's mother had passed away prior to the writing of this song, and her name was Mary, all of a sudden, this song takes on new meaning. Now, Paul and the Beatles were having a lot of problems, legal problems, and uh, there was a lot of infighting. And apparently, Paul had a dream where his mother, Mary, appeared to him. And she just says, son, just let it be. Walk away. Let it be. And the rest is history. Now, knowing that about that song makes that song much more powerful to me and a much more meaningful song to me. In the same way, knowing who Jesus was and knowing that Jesus was Messiah cast much of the Old Testament in an entirely new context and a much more powerful context. Now, everyone was filled with awe 
at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Makes sense because this was, at this point in time, primarily a Jewish movement within Judaism. And so they would meet at the temple because that's where worship took place. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, this is amazing to me. In the beginning, at the very beginning, it says they enjoyed the favor of all the people. Huh. They were popular with the general populace. It seemed to me that the religious leaders would not like this. And of course, I would certainly think so because they were involved with the uh, death of Jesus. But in the beginning, it's like this huge overwhelming movement was sweeping through Jerusalem. And I just find it amazing that in the beginning, the church enjoyed the favor with all the people. Why? Well, they were taking care of people. They were loving their neighbor as themselves. They were loving God and loving their neighbors. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow. I'm just sitting there. I'm just gobsmacked at the thought. 3,000 people saved. He hits them in the face with their complicit involvement with the death of, of the Messiah. They repent. 3,000 are saved in one, in one fell swoop. They, they met from day to day, eating, sharing. If they had extra, they sold it. They made sure that people around them who had need, those needs were taken care of. What's amazing to me, it doesn't say the believers sold property and possessions to help other believers only. It just says here, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So whether or not you were a member of this new sect, if you will, a member of the way, if you had need, these people would take care of it. This was a revolutionary new thing that was taking place. And it turned Jerusalem upside down. Now, eventually, the religious leaders would snap and come after them just like they did with Jesus. But initially... Jerusalem was very accepting of what was going on. This is an amazing event. This first explosion of the church into the world's into the world scene. Um, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna spend some more time thinking on this, but I loved the fact that they that the initial response upon being saved was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking bread and to prayer. Teaching, fellowship, meals, and prayers. And I'm remembering when I first became a Christian way back in 1975. Um, one of the things that changed immediately within myself is that I was drawn to the Bible 
and to teaching. Uh, I devoured the Bible. I memorized books in the New Testament. At one point, I'd memorized First Timothy um, and, and, he, and several other books, much of the Gospel of John. And I just couldn't get enough of the Bible. My life was changed. And I'm thinking that back to what we study when we studied James, how James was saying that a saving faith is accompanied by a changed life. There should be a change evident. These people were changed. They repented. And it's almost overnight, their lives switched around and they were studying the scripture. They were fellowshipping. They were feeding the poor, taking care of the less fortunate. Um, there was a change in their lives. Christianity isn't just the adoption of a creed or a set of rules and regulations. Yes, we're expected to behave ourselves in a moral and upright manner. But the mark of a Christian is a changed life. Like what you see here, this was a, this was a huge change in what was going on in Jerusalem. When I got saved, my life changed. And my wife will tell you, and people who knew me before and after would tell you that I am a completely different person now from the person I was then. So when you repent and change direction, that doesn't mean you're just going to adopt a new set of rules to live by. If you are truly repentant, your life will change. I know that sounds like doublespeak. I know it sounds like I might be saying, um, if you become a Christian, you should, you should do things different. And I am saying that. But conversely, if you just do things different, you're not necessarily a Christian. That, doesn't that sound dumb? But that's the truth of it. Perhaps a better way of saying it is that if you're truly a believer, your change sticks. It, you change and you stay changed. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. There's some stuff to think about here. I appreciate it. I uh, appreciate you listening. Tomorrow, Friday, we're going to start chapter three of Acts. And then this, this is going to be kind of cool because now the adventure starts expanding from Jerusalem. It's going to be great. All right, that's it. I'm wrapping it up for the morning. This is Mr. G. Here's my coffee. I'm out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye. 